Welcome to Arkansas AgCast, your source for the latest news and views in Arkansas agriculture. Arkansas AgCast is produced by the Arkansas Farm Bureau Federation. Welcome to the Arkansas AgCast for July 1st. I'm your host, Rob Anderson. On this week's edition, we visit Hempstead County Farmers Market to meet some local growers and vendors. We hear about the recently released Arkansas Groundwater Protection and Management Report and get some tips on avoiding tick problems. First, Steve Powell spent the day with a Hempstead County couple who have been farming near Emmett for years. They sell much of what they grow at farmers markets around the area, but like many farmers this year, they've faced some ups and downs. Steve found out how they and their customers are coping with the challenges of 2021. You'll have to travel a few dirt and gravel roads to find Salinas Farms in Hempstead County. When you do, you'll see it's not a small operation. Over 700 acres, and uh, I got all of that in corn and watermelons up there. I put all my heifers up yonder in that field. And then I got these three tunnel houses here that I, I raise a lot of produce on. That's Manuel Salinas, a farmer with more than a few seasons behind him. This life is all he's ever known. Well, Daddy had a dairy farm when I was born, and he died in 55, and I was 10 years old, and uh, I've been working ever since because there was no welfare back then, no food stamps, no nothing. And I had five other little brothers at home, so I had to go to work. I've been doing it ever since. He used to get up at 4 o'clock in the morning and go. He's been going on this piece of land for decades now. If it's here, he built it or grew it. Oh, there wasn't much when I bought it. and I, I built all the fences. Everything that's on it, I built it. I got a close to 300 head of cattle that I take care of. The cattle will have to wait because tomorrow he and his wife Trisha will be headed to the Hope Farmers Market. Picking is this afternoon's priority, and the tomatoes are looking promising. I don't know. There's probably 200 plants of tomatoes here. Most of them about seven foot tall, and they're loaded with tomatoes from top to bottom. That's the sound of crisp, fresh corn. Beautiful, ain't it? But not much else here has gone beautifully this year. A late freeze did major damage. Then came the rains. Don't even ask how much. Lord God, I don't know. Three times more than what we usually get. And if it come an inch or so, it'd be okay. But when you get five and six inches at a time, and three or four days later, you get that many, much more. It has been terrible. The worst we have seen since we've been farming. Because, you know, how often do you get a freeze in April? And actually it was in May too. Got down to 32 degrees. Everything is in bloom by that time and it just wipes it out. So you gotta start all over. We have strawberries. We have fruit trees. We have blackberries, blueberries. But the weather just got them all this year. So it's, you know, just been a bad year. That's Manuel's wife, Tricia. She knows what they'll be taking to market will be as good as years past, but it won't be as plentiful. That's especially true for watermelon. It's just grass now, but I planted watermelons three times there and they didn't do no good. How many you lost? You lost 80% of them? No, I lost 99.5% of my melons. I lost 10 acres completely. All I say was these three rows and then pig with 50 watermelons off of the three rows. Just 
50 in a county famous for its watermelons, big watermelons. Well, the biggest one I grow here, but they're just regular watermelons. They're not them great big melons. I had one weighed 100 pounds. And I had a black diamond that weighed 70 pounds. And a friend of mine took him to the truck stop up here and sold him $25 a piece to a trucker. <laughs> By daybreak the next morning, the Salinases are set up in the hub. That's what they call the market pavilion here in Hope. All things considered, they've got a pretty good spread. This morning we brought watermelons, cantaloupes, uh, sweet corn, cucumbers, yellow squash, zucchini squash, ripe tomatoes, green tomatoes, and homemade jelly. Manuel and Tricia have been a staple here on Tuesdays for as long as anybody can remember. Market manager Dina Gilbert says it's why most folks who shop their two tables feel more like family than customers. They're really the heart and soul of our whole market. They've been here from day one. They are just awesome, awesome people. Well, Hope is a small town and it, it's one of the friendliest towns I've ever known anyway. And everybody loves their markets. They like the produce, they like the camaraderie. I have just almost renamed this the Hope Social Clubs. Any single one of them need help, all they gotta do is pick up the phone and call. And same with us, we could call anybody here. Hey, we need help. And everybody's just there for everybody else. It's a fantastic market. Early shoppers get the best selection, so they can be choosy. When you buy a cantaloupe, pick it up, and smell the stem of it to see if it really smells like a cantaloupe. And if it don't, don't buy it. Which one you want? <laughs> um, let's see. Which one looks like it'll last me a while? Here, I'll, I'll get them for you. Okay, yeah, you, you're the expert. Okay. And how much are the cucumbers, too? The cucumbers? Yes, sir. They're uh, three for a dollar. Okay, pick me out three of those too. Three of those. Yes, sir. I just need some large squash because I'm on my squash relish. And it's so much easier to just do the big ones than do a whole bunch of little ones. Here's a good one. Okay, I'll take that one. That one. How much are your tomatoes? They're five dollars a bucket. Okay, I want a bucket of tomatoes. You want a bucket of yes, okay. That's what I need. Thank you so much. Ten dollars. I appreciate y'all. I make sure it's clean. Now, I don't necessarily wash it unless it's been laying on the ground. I wipe it with a damp cloth. Everything you see here. The food is so much better, so much healthier. And I know when we were trying to get the grant to build this building here, we had a man at city council said he wasn't really worried about a farmer's market. He could always go to McDonald's and get a hamburger. I said, oh yeah? Where do you think McDonald's soybeans come from? So, you know, it doesn't matter what you do. you got to have farmers. Whether it's lumber, paper, somebody has to do it, right? Food? Yeah, that's why we do it. As the sun goes up, the rush here winds down but don't expect the same of the Salinases. They just don't do that. We, we just never stop. We think just retiring and sitting down is not healthy. That's why we look at it. And we like to work, 
We like to farm, so why quit? We're both on Social Security, which is not a whole lot if you, you know, if you truth be known. But we do all right while we're selling at the farm and here. Our home's paid for, our vehicles are paid for, so we're just, if we feel like doing it, we can do it. If we want to quit, we can quit. I probably still got another 20 years, I ain't but 77. <laughs> another 20 years might seem optimistic if you didn't know Manuel or Tricia. They'll just keep going and growing. The Hope Farmer's Market wouldn't be the same without them. Next up, Keith Sutton visits with Dr. Kelly Lofton with the UA's Cooperative Extension Service. Lofton addresses the prevalence of tick-borne illnesses in Arkansas and shares some steps we can take to avoid problems. Welcome to AgCast. I'm Keith Sutton with Arkansas Farm Bureau. And if you folks are like me, you've already uh, had some run-ins with ticks this summer season. And that's what we want to talk about today with our guest, Dr. Kelly Lofton. Uh, who's an entomologist with the Cooperative Extension Service. Welcome to AgCast, Dr. Lofton. Oh, appreciate the opportunity. Yeah, uh, let's start out by letting you uh, uh, tell folks a little about yourself and uh, uh, your background in uh, studying ticks. Uh, okay, Uh First, I'll mention I, I was reared in Arkansas. I, I, I'm an Arkansas boy or old man now. <laughs> but uh, my experience with ticks goes way back when I was an Army entomologist 35 years ago. But uh, since then, uh, we've, we've had a few tick projects. You may remember that citizen science project where folks from all over the state were sitting in ticks. And... Uh, a little later on, we did a few studies with entomopathogenic fungi. We isolated some out here at the farm at Savoy, hoping they would kill the Lone Star Tick. Uh, they were isolated from Lone Star Ticks, but unfortunately, they weren't highly pathogenic. A, bit, a little bit later on, uh, we started working with ticks associated with feral hogs. So, you know, with the feral hog problem, we saw an opportunity to collect ticks off the hogs to see see what they were carrying in terms of tick species, but also look at those uh, ticks and see what pathogens they may be carrying. Uh, we're, we're also doing an ongoing survey uh, for the, find the, determine the presence of the Asian longhorn tick. I'm not sure. Are you familiar with that tick at all? I have heard that is a, a new species. It's just starting to turn up in the state, as far as we know. That, that's correct. Uh, right now, you know, uh, it's only been found in one county, and there's only been a handful found, of, uh, like three three nymphs or so, and a couple of larval ticks. But it's it's one that concerned us because of what we see in the 15 eastern states, east of the Mississippi River. It, it could be a real concern uh, to cattle production. So we're, we're trying to catch it as soon as it gets here in, in any kind of numbers. Uh, so another, 
Go ahead. No, no you go ahead. I, I didn't mean to jump in front of you there. Uh, another issue that we've seen associated with, with the ticks uh, in Arkansas has been anaplasmosis. You know, there was a recent survey oh, a couple of years ago that showed a high prevalence of anaplasmosis. So, but we're, we're starting a study this year. We're going to be looking at the ticks associated with cattle and wildlife, such as uh, white-tailed deer, to get a better idea of potential vectors. So for the people out there who uh, don't understand, explain the term vector. <laughs> oh, uh, it's basically uh, an arthropod, in this case a tick, that transmits, in this case, it can be a bacterial disease, it can be a protozoan, but it, it transmits that disease-causing organism from one organism, one host, to another. And in many cases, uh, the tick serves as a biological vector of that organism, and the organism actually, uh, within that tick, multiplies. So you'll have more of those. So an infected. example uh, might be uh, people have heard of deer ticks, which in uh, eastern states carry Lyme disease. So those deer ticks, ticks then would be considered a vector of Lyme disease. Correct. Correct. So what are we we have a variety of tick species here in arkansas I, I i'm not really familiar with which ones are, are most common or what diseases they do carry could you talk a little about that okay uh first i'll mention you know if we look at that uh citizen science project uh or some somewhere over ten thousand ticks collected and if we look at what we found, uh, we found eight species. Uh, Lone Star Tick, the American Dog Tick, Black-Legged Tick, which is actually the Deer Tick. Uh, but the real name is Black-Legged Tick. Uh, Gulf Coast Tick, Brown Dog Tick, Winter Tick, Woodchuck Tick, and Rabbit Tick. With all that said, the most, most common ticks that you'll encounter will be the Lone Star, the American Dog, the Black-Legged, and the Gulf Coast. And of those four, the most prevalent is going to be the Lone Star tick. So we've, we've got four that we see fairly routinely. Now, if we look at those four species, uh, the Lone Star Tick uh, is a vector of ehrlichiosis. That's bacterial. Uh, it's been shown to be associated with the Heartland virus, which uh, we don't see much of. Uh, it's associated with the Southern Tick-associated rash illness and uh, tularemia. Then if we look at the the Gulf Coast tick, it's associated with uh, Rickettsia parkeri, which is a spotted fever group Rickettsia. 
similar to Rocky Mountain spotted fever, but generally considered not as severe. Then we look at uh, the American dog tick. That's the one that, that we really get concerned about in terms of Rocky Mountain spotted fever. It's, it's, it's a, a potential vector of it, as well as tularemia. Now, as far as the exodes ticks, which are the, uh, basically what I'm talking uh, about, it's a black-legged tick, or as we refer to it, deer tick. It's a potential vector of Lyme disease. And Arkansas does have a few cases every year, not, not many, uh, as well as anaplasmosis. There's a human form of anaplasmosis that it can carry. So that's, that's the major, major disease we'd associate with those four tick species. Well, that's, that's a lot to, to grasp. I know it seems like each year I hear about the prevalence of some new disease. Uh, an example might be in recent years we're starting to hear about a disease called, or maybe it's not a disease, maybe it's an allergy. You, you might can explain, uh, called alpha-gal, where people yeah. develop a, a, a allergy to eating uh, mammalian meat, red meat, uh, those kind of things are pretty scary when you hear about them. Yes, it, it, is, it is scary. Uh, Alpha-gal, and basically it's a delayed reaction uh, after consuming red meat, you get a delayed type reaction basically to the sugars, the alpha-galactose sugars in the meat. And it's associated with uh, the Lone Star tick. And that, again, that's the most prevalent tick we see in Arkansas. So, you know, it, it's a concern, especially if you're a, a beef eater. Right, <laughs> for sure. Uh, what we're learning from listening to you is we have a wide variety of uh, different illnesses that could be caused by a tick bite. So how, how concerned should I be if I'm a... Uh, a farmer or just anybody who's outdoors this summer, uh, how concerned should I be if I see a tick on me or, or get a tick bite? And uh, maybe uh, what should I do? Well, you know, I'd say it's important to be concerned, but, but uh, we don't want to let it handicap us either. So there are things we can do to, to minimize exposure to ticks and tick-borne diseases. You know, I guess first we could kind of start by premises. Uh, you know, you can do a carousel applications to small areas like your yards, products like bifenicrin, to knock out the tick population to some extent. But that's only going to be feasible for very small areas. That's not feasible for a large pasture. So... So we have to consider that. Uh, a few other things you can do is, is weed and brush control. And, and what that will do is reduce humidity where the ticks live and thrive. And that would reduce the favorability to the tick and uh, decrease survival. Well, 
in a yard situ situation or a, a farmstead, one of the most important things to do as far as reducing the tick population is to maintain a very effective tick control program on the pets, or, you know, on your dogs and cats. Because if the dogs and cats are out roaming, uh, they will bring in ticks. And uh, they may be completely fed ticks. They'll drop off in your yard. They'll molt to the next stage and be searching for a host to attach to. Uh, so it, it's important to maintain some good control of ticks on the pets. There's also uh, some uh, things we can apply that would uh, help keep ticks off of us. Is that correct? Yes, yes. And, and as far as personal protection, and I want to say this first, is anytime you're out exposed to where there's going to be ticks, the first thing you need to do when you get back is, is basically uh, thoroughly check your body for ticks after returning from the field. The second thing that's important following that is proper removal of those ticks. And when I say proper removal, uh, we also want to indicate that that removal is, is uh, the right way. We're not going to bob uh, fingernail polish or anything like that on it. That does not, that's not the thing to do. The thing to do is, is get some sterilized forceps, get your, uh, forceps as close to the skin as possible and pull that tick up with uh, steady pressure and remove it that way so you can get all them out. And you don't want to squeeze that tick as you're doing that either, right? No, no squeezing, no no twisting. Just move it out steady up with pressure. Okay. And then wash the, the, of course, the site where the tick was with soap and water. And you can take it as a step further and take that tick and put it in some alcohol or a baggie or something and keep it just in case you develop some some illnesses associated. Now, as far as repellents, they're very important. And one thing that I'll mention first that that uh, I really routinely use, we, we live on a, a farm myself. We have horses and that kind of thing. We're surrounded by a national forest, so we've got the ticks. And and uh, the clothing-only repellents are very effective. And these clothing-only repellents uh, contain permethrin. Uh, some brand names would be Sawyer's or Permanon, or maybe others. Those are applied to the clothing only. You can also put them on your boots and gear. Follow that label entirely. And in most cases, you will not have to uh, reapply that product for a while. I mean, it'll last through several washings. Uh, another thing you can consider, you can purchase clothing that's already pre-treated with the permanent that'll last through several washings. So that. That's, that's one thing that's, that's very effective. Uh, then we move on to skin repellents. Uh, 
when we think of skin repellents, let me ask you this question. What's the first thing you think of when, when we talk about skin repellents? Well, I think of DEET comes to mind, the ingredient DEET that <clears throat> might be used in something like off uh, or cutters, something Correct. for mosquitoes, uh, basically. Yes, and, and, you know, that's how 95% of the people would answer. And that's correct. Deep can be a, a tick repellent. But uh, over the 20-something years of work here, uh, I ran into a lot of people that are very resistant to using deep for various reasons. So I, I just want people to know that deep's an option, but there are also... Uh, other effective repellents that are not deep. That's good uh, to know because I think a lot of people uh, are not familiar with uh, the permethrin-based repellents. And uh, you can look in your local discount store and find those as well uh, or in sporting goods stores. And sometimes those might be a better option for people that do have problems with deep. Uh, you know, a couple examples of skin repellents that, that are effective on, t on ticks. Look for the active ingredient, picaridin, P-I-C-A-R-I-D-I-N. That's effective on, as a tick repellent. And there's a, a relatively new one that's a little more difficult to find called BioUDs, just B-I-O-U-D that's effective as a tick repellent, both on the skin and clothing. So those are a couple of non-deep options that people might think about. Well, it's good to know we have options because all of us are, are pretty worried when we're out about having to deal with ticks. So the best way not to deal with them is to be sure we don't get ticks on us in the first place. And those repellents can certainly help in that way. And it, it, Again, I want to emphasize it. If, if you forget your repellent and, and you get ticks, uh, that prompt removal is so important because, as a whole, most of these, especially the bacterial uh, pathogens that are transmitted by ticks, you know, infected ticks, uh, most all of them. Tick will have to be attached for 24 hours to transmit the microorganism. So, the quicker you can get that tick off, the better off you'll be. And let's kind of wrap up our discussion, uh, Dr. Lofton, talking about what what do I need to watch for if I did get a tick bite, and I'm worried uh, about getting one of these illnesses, what, what do I need to be aware of and looking for? And at what time maybe do I need to go see a physician? Okay. And, and, and first thing I'll mention is, is obviously I'm not a physician. I'm an entomologist. But even with that said, uh, watch the, the uh, site where the tick bit you. You know, you start seeing swelling, you, you see some uh, rash developing, that's a sign you, you could have acquired something. The other thing that, that's very important is, is, do you have any symptoms like headache, fever, 
problems like that, those can be associated with a, a tick-borne illness. So if you see something like that develop, that would indicate that you need to see a physician and be sure and let them know that uh, you had a tick bite and when you had it. Remember the day, write the day down that you had that tick bite because it may be very important in determining what you may have. Uh, and also you'll have that tick with you in case uh, the physician may want to see what type of tick it is and associate the tick with the uh, one of those tick-borne illnesses. That's good advice that you gave earlier to, if you do get a tick, you might want to stick it in a plastic bag and have it available to take with you should you have to go to a doctor so they can maybe more quickly diagnose what, what your problem is. Absolutely. Yes. Well, there's a lot to absorb here and. uh, we know you've uh, studied ticks for, for most of a lifetime. I'm sure we could talk for hours and hours, but uh, what we want to do today is make people aware uh, there could be problems associated with tick bite, and the best way to avoid those is try to avoid ticks altogether and uh, try to keep their numbers down in your yard and, and where you can and to wear repellents, and to be sure you check really good when you come in from the outdoors so those ticks don't have a chance to be attached to you very long. Absolutely. That's that's good advice. Well, we appreciate your time today, Dr. Lofton, and uh, thank you very much for sharing all this information, and hopefully uh, somebody out there will have heard something new uh, as they listen to the podcast today and we'll learn more about how to avoid uh, tick-borne illnesses. Good. I, I appreciate being able to talk to you. Sure. Right. Thank you very much. Thank you. Finally, Jason Brown talks with Jim Battrell from the Natural Resources Division at the Arkansas Department of Agriculture about the recently released Arkansas Groundwater Protection and Management Report. Jim shares the report's findings on two of the most important water resources in the state, the alluvial and Sparta aquifers, as well as more information on groundwater level trends, conservation programs, and more. Today, we're joined by Jim Battrell, the Geology Supervisor for Groundwater for the Natural Resources Division of the Arkansas Department of Agriculture. Jim, your team recently released the 2020 Arkansas Groundwater Protection and Management Report. And I know that report is dated 2020, but it was just released. Um, So can you share a little bit about the history of that report and what it covers? Sure. Um, The reason it was the 2020 report is we look back uh, over the a period of one year. So we're looking at the 2019 to 2020 uh, changes in the Sparta-Memphis sand and the Mississippi River Valley alluvial aquifers for this report. So we just wrapped up the 2021 data collection. So the next report that comes out next spring will be 20 to 21. So that's why it's dated that way. We we do this uh, with our partners at the USGS and the NRCS uh, every year, every spring, we collect uh, groundwater uh, levels from uh, both aquifers, mm-hmm. uh, same wells every year. So we're, we're measuring apples to apples, and we like to do it. We, we don't like to. We do do it pre-irrigation and post-recharge. So we have about a six-week 
uh, window there in the spring that we go out and collect uh, 800 to 1,000 uh, water levels for this report. So that's why it's 19 to 20, so we call it the 20 report. Next one that comes out will be called the 21, but it'll look back at the uh, spring 20 changes to the spring 21 changes. Yeah, no, I I think that makes sense. For those of us familiar with fiscal years, I think that'll – uh, that'll make a lot of sense. I just want to make sure folks know they're looking at the at the same report that we're talking about here when they go to find it. Um, let's talk about you a little bit, Jim. So uh, tell us about your work at the department. How did you get involved in this report? Um, you know, kind of help us understand what, um, yeah, your, your work on all of this. Sure. Well, uh, I started doing this 21 years ago. In 2000, I was asked to... Uh, um, come do the groundwater management protection report. This is this is a report that's mandated that uh, the Natural Resources Commission does by uh, the Groundwater Protection and Management Act of 1991, I believe it was. I believe it was Act 154 of 1991. So I did this report for the author for about 18 years, and now I've uh, I supervised the section. I've got a uh, hired a a professional geologist, Blake Forrest, he has done it the last three. So um, we're mandated to do it by the act, but we also work in close conjunction with our, our NRCS and USGS partners to uh, to collect this data. Okay, great. Now, aside from the groundwater piece, which is mentioned obviously in the title, uh, the report covers important issues like aquifer status. You mentioned that. Uh, water level trends, conservation tax incentive programs, and and other things. How might Arkansas farmers leverage this report? Well, a couple of ways they they can look uh, specifically in the in the report, and there's tables in the back that show uh, the historic changes of each specific well, the 800 to a thousand that we do each well uh, each year. So they can look back in the tables and see. Uh, their county or their area or actually specific wells. We have producers that uh, come out and meet us when we're out in the field collecting the data that we've been doing for on their on their property for 20, 25 years. They just want to see the books and look and see what's actually happening on their property. Um, but so there's some there's some county specifics and some well specifics in the back of the report. But um, I'm glad you mentioned the tax credit program. That's something that. Uh, uh, a lot of farmers can uh, use in the state. We've got a uh, a new Act 875 that was just passed that expanded the area where the uh, uh, the conservation from uh, the conversion from surface water or from groundwater to surface water uh, has been expanded to every county that's contiguous to an area that had been previously designated as a critical groundwater area by the commission. So. What this is basically, and they can find this online when they go to, uh, if they want to go find the report, um, reservoirs, on-farm storage, relifts, land leveling, conversions from uh, groundwater to surface water, water meters are all covered under this. So uh, depending on where you are, there's uh, specific percentages and money that you can get as a tax credit for uh, state tax liability. So that's probably the number one thing that uh, the farmers can leverage out of this. Yeah, that's, that's really helpful. Um, okay. So we've talked a little bit about um, more about what's in the report, the tax incentive programs. Can you share about specifically about what you've learned 
regarding the two, I would call them incredibly important resources in the state, the Mississippi River Valley Alluvial Aquifer and the Sparta Memphis Aquifer? Sure. Um, well, we're, we're a water-rich state. We've got plenty of water that runs across, across Arkansas. Um, we, we're the second largest water user in, in the United States. Uh, it fluctuates between second and third, depending on the year, uh, always behind California. So out of the Mississippi River Valley alluvial aquifer, we utilize about, give or take, 7 billion gallons a day out of the aquifer for irrigation of, of crops in eastern Arkansas. Uh, the, the modeling that the USGS has done over the past 10, 15 years has shown that that's about double what the aquifer can sustain. So it's no surprise that we see the, the cones of depression in the aquifer growing each year. Uh, we're pretty much taking out double what the aquifer can sustain each year. And, and same goes for the Sparta Memphis sand, but not to the extent it can't produce the amount of water that the alluvial aquifer can. Um, it can sustain, the Sparta Memphis can sustain about 87 uh, uh, billion gallons or 87 million gallons a day. And we're doing Oh, 160, give or take, depending on the year. So, and that, and that Sparta sand is, is also a deeper, you know, the producers know it's a deeper aquifer. The fuel costs are, are greater to, to utilize the aquifer. And it, it's also a public supply aquifer. So it's not really a good option for, for, uh, irrigation compared to the, the shallower Mississippi River Valley alluvial aquifer. Yeah. Okay. Well, that's, uh, that's, that's good to know. Are there any solutions or, or, or any, anything like that talked about, or, or is it the purpose of this report just to strictly, you know, stick to sort of the, the status or the, the current, you know, the current picture of, of those aquifers? It is, it's, it's, it's really just a report on the science and the, the facts of what's going on. And, and, uh, you know, the, the commission has always, uh, always wanted to utilize education conservation efforts tax credit program and and the use of excess surface water is is the solutions really to the problem and it's no surprise um that's why the groundwater conservation tax credit program anything we can do to take pressure off the aquifer shows that uh, you know the water levels will improve if we can just reduce you know increase the increase the conservation and reduce the usage mm-hmm. okay yeah no that's yeah Okay. Well, speaking of this report and, and the work you did, you, you talked a little bit about this earlier, but can you just go back over the, the time period that you, you and the team uh, conducted the research and collected this data? Sure. We, we go out with our partners um, at the USGS. We get together every year and everybody, one year we'll go out and do the Mississippi River Valley alluvial aquifer and they'll go out and do the Sparta wells. And then the next year we'll swap but we're doing the exact same wells so that we're measuring, like I said, apples to apples. We're, we're checking each other's work each year and we're doing it before irrigation starts. So once any irrigation starts, the, the data is useless. So we don't collect any data at that point. So I would say we start, um, mid to late March and we wrap it up mid to late April every year. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that, I think the, I love that point about, uh, pre-irrigation so so folks can start to sort of pinpoint now 
the 2020 year and and what that means and then and then it, we're at pre-irrigation when that happens and, and the the redundancy in the in the data collection too I think is is a good point um were there since the last report have you seen any impacts from weather um you know on the aquifers or beyond whether it be groundwater or, or whatever that may be Sure. Every, every year, really, precipitation is a is a major uh, factor in if we have declines or not. If they if they get precipitation at the right place at the right time, you know, obviously we don't want to irrigate, and then the the local uh, result of that will be the a rise in the in this uh, aquifer in that area. But what we really saw this last report, I think, was the nineteen the flooding uh, in two thousand nineteen took acreage out of production. And there wasn't as any irrigation uh, in in those areas, so we actually saw a rise um, for wide the entire eastern part of the state of about uh, 1.4 feet. So um, we've seen that historically. We've we've got records going back to the 30s. We every once in a while you'll get a year where precipitation is just right and irrigation is down, and we'll get a little bump. But overall, it's still a still a downward trend. It's it's mm-hmm. roughly you can say. Um, very general terms, the drawdown is about three feet aquifer wide every year, and the recharge is about two feet. Oh, I see. Yeah. So we we lose about a foot of aquifer a year on on average. Okay. So the 2019 flooding event, obviously bad news for producers. Some some silver lining there for the aquifer, and then probably, I mean, yet to be seen, but we'll see some sort of impact from the southeast Arkansas flooding in in the 2021 report. I'm sure. I think we will locally, yes. Uh, are there any water management lessons or even policy changes noted um, in the report that might be helpful to farmers? Well, it's more of a scientific report, I stated, but um, there there have been some policy changes. There's been some, uh, like I mentioned, Act 875 actually expanded the area where the groundwater tax, uh, conservation tax credits can take place. Uh, things like that are always helpful, and I think we're all, you know, legislature and producers and and the commission and department are all, you know, everybody's working towards the same goal to mm-hmm. try to conserve the resource so it's, you know, there in the future. But um, yeah, I think we're all working, we're all we're all heading the right direction. Yeah, this reminds me of a recent irrigation district announcement that I attended, and 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 interestingly enough, too, obviously not just uh, row crop growers here invested, but visited a fish farm the other day where aquifer and groundwater um, uh, and irrigation districts came up as well. So important to, to all, all sorts of farmers across the state. Um, sure. Okay. What is, what it's a piece of, is there a piece of data in this report that surprised you uh, that sort of took you by surprise? Well, actually not, not really. I've been doing this for so long. It's, it was expected to uh, to see maybe a bump in the the one year mm-hmm. uh, snapshot of the water levels, but overall, you know, since like I mentioned, since we're taking out uh, almost twice what the aquifer can sustain, it's it's really there's not really any surprise that we're going to see overall declines and trends continuing downward. Unfortunately, yeah. Okay. Um. All right. As we kind of wrap up here. 
been super helpful conversation, I believe. Uh, as we wrap up here, how can farmers or anybody else interested, for that matter, find this report? Uh, they can go on the uh, Department of Agriculture's website and uh, go to the Natural Resources Division uh, tab mm-hmm. of the of the Department of Agriculture, and we've got a place there for uh, it says reports. So, and I also have I like to leave up the previous five, six, seven years or so, how many of their, they have room for so that people can go back and look, you know, historically, if they want to go back to year before last or three years ago report, the, those are all on there. So they can go look at their specific wells or County or area. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And just an editorial note for me, I skimmed through a few of these and not only is there good text, including summaries of the report, but really in depth text, a lot of great graphics that should compare year over year in there as well. It's just really, really easy to consume uh, report. Um, so commend you and your team for that. Uh, before, oh, thank you. Yeah. Before we wrap up, is there anything else that uh, perhaps I didn't cover that you'd like to address? No, I don't think so. It's pretty thorough. You kind of, kind of touched on all the bases that were important. Good. Awesome. Well, thank you, Jim, so much for taking the time to speak with us here at Arkansas AgCast. We look forward to having you back on the podcast again soon and hope you have a wonderful 4th of July weekend. Sure, no problem anytime. That's it for this week's Arkansas AgCast. We'll be back next Thursday with more stories and news about Arkansas agriculture. Have a great 4th of July.